Welcome to Beautiful Botswana, the travel podcast, where we aim to travel around Botswana and learn about this wonderful safari destination as we chat with experts, safari professionals and safari legends, as we share stories, recommendations and help you plan your Botswana holiday. Joining me today for Beautiful Botswana, episode 17, is somebody you have never met, which makes this one a little bit more intimidating than the average episode where we either face-to-face or they're people I know. This guest actually reached out to me after having listened to the podcast, and so it was really exciting to connect and talk about something that I keep on saying needs discussion and keeps on being raised in our snapshot sessions as an area of great importance, and that is the Makarikari Pans. So joining me today to talk about the Makarikari Pans is a true Pans expert. She is the Trapnell Fellow of African Environments at the University of Oxford. She's a quaternary scientist, a National Geographic explorer, and an expert on the prehistory of the Pans. She joins me all the way today from the UK, and it gives me great pleasure to introduce Dr. Sally Burrows. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sally. Thanks for inviting me, Tessa. So, Sally, let's kick off by talking about how it was that you first came into contact with Botswana, got to know about the PANS and experienced Botswana for yourself. Um, Yeah, it was a long time ago now, but I was was a student and I was working, actually working in Indian Sudan. And for reasons that are complicated, the funding on my project fell through. Uh, and so I was in the process of converting my PhD into a master's and I was a bit sort of downtrodden about the whole thing. And this professor showed up um, in Oxford and said, well, listen, don't give up. I've got this project um, there's some, some questions we really haven't got to grips with and maybe you can answer them. Um, but you've got to do your PhD in about two years. Um, and it's in a place that you will never have heard of called the Makadi Kadi Pans. I think my jaw must have dropped because I, oh, I, I, that's actually where my brother lives. And he'd been working as a safari guide out there for a couple of years. Um, yeah, and went on to to be out there for about a decade. Um, so yeah, so then I ended up in the same place as him, trying to steal his car to do my research. <laughs> um, every field season. I mean, as you said in the introduction, I don't live in Botswana. So uh, my experience of Botswana is very much what the dry season, because that is our field season. So Every year we would we would come out for a month to six weeks um, and do some field work in Botswana, and then we spend the rest of the year in in the laboratory in Oxford um, trying to process all of the mud and the stuff that we sampled um, and try and sort of piece bits together about um, the the kind of climate change within Botswana, but the looking backwards in time. So we look at the last sort of 200,000 years of, of climatic history and what the environment would have looked like in Botswana at that time. Um, and much of the focus of that has really been about um, Makarikari and, and the ancient lake um, it, it, that goes with that. Well, that's that's a great lead on to the next question, which would be, what is it, what is Makarikari? Can you sort of give a brief outline of its importance geographically as well, sort of as its ecological I know you're not an ecologist, but sort of just as ecological spot in the in our environment and what makes it unique and special. 
Yeah, I mean, it's um, presently, I mean, it's a, a salt pan or a series of salt pans, actually. And, and sometimes you hear it described as the largest salt pan in the world. It's, it's actually not. There is one larger in South America. I think it might be the, the second largest. Um, so it's made up of two, two really big pans, Natuetue and, and Suapan. Um, Suapan can seasonally flood every year. Um, Natuetue is a little bit drier. Um, they are, I mean, incredibly beautiful environments to, to go to, but they're actually, um, they're not kind of true salt pans in the sense of many of the pans in, in the, the south of Botswana. They are this relic of this ancient lake that we know um, existed right smack bang in the middle of, of the Kalahari. Um, yeah. And, it, and sort of trying to understand how, how that how those pans formed I guess is part of of my job <laughs> and um yeah what they what they look like in the past I mean they would have been very very different so they they connect up with the Mababi depression and with Lake Ngami and the Okavango Delta so they would have formed in the past this enormous lake system um, that would have covered an awful lot of northern Botswana. And it's quite hard to imagine that now. And I think we think of them as very separate systems. But in the world I occupy, where I'm studying these things, they are all part of one giant lake. Um, so it's quite hard to get your head around that, I think, <laughs> when you go there. Yeah, and what's, in, what's the relationship then between the Makarikaripans um, and Naipan? Uh, Naipan is part of that, of part of that pan system. So it's inside what we call the um, the nine four five shoreline. So there's a series of shorelines that bound these things, um, and we think they're formed when the the lake level was high, and it's basically there's there's winds driving across that lake, um, and pushing sand and sediment into these shorelines. And um, so if you're driving from Maun to, towards Nata, about a hundred k's out of out of Maun, you go through like a, a quite a big cutting. You go up a little hill and through a cutting. At the top of the cutting is a is actually a picnic site. It's not a particularly pleasant picnic site, mm-hmm. um, but that is that is actually the shoreline of the of the lake. Um, so it has this, these different levels, um, and part of what I did for my PhD was trying to understand what these these different levels of the lake mean. How old were these shorelines, and, and, and you know how were they formed? When were they formed? When was this lake there, and why isn't there? Why it isn't there anymore, I guess, is one of the big questions. Um, yeah, so so yeah, Naipan is it, yeah, it's firmly within that within that um, lake bed. And talking about the lake bed, then for people who are coming up from the south, let's say they were driving into Maun through Rakops and Mopipi, yeah. they're obviously also crossing part of that lake bed at that point. How far south does it go? Um, so the, it goes. I mean, it incorporates quite a few of the pans. So the southern shoreline of Makarikari is much steeper than, um, than, the, than the north or the west. So you have these big um, sort of sedimentary shorelines, so big kind of soft shorelines, I guess, on the on the western side. And the southern side, particularly around Suapan, and as you come along that road um, from around through Rakops that way, you're coming up past the, um, the Boteti that takes you into that ridge. But on the southern side, it's a much harder shoreline. There's these big, steep ridges. Um, if you sort of went towards the, the lake, that you would be able to see a very definitive boundary. Um, so I can't describe... I, I, my problem is I know the lake from the from the inside. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I'm rarely travelling on the roads. <laughs> um, yeah, but you would cross... You'd cross a number of the, the, the old rivers that went into it and the Letlakani and um, in the south. Certainly. Um, so then what was it that led to the lake drying up? 
what what changed that we see it as it is today? There, there's, um, I mean, it's a very long story. So I guess the the to to sort of rewind back to the beginning, when this lake was at its its biggest, it was because the rivers that um, now sort of characterise um, northern Botswana and and southern Zambia looked very very different. So the Upper Zambezi and the Kwando joined up with the Limpopo. Um, and flowed south out into Mozambique. Um, and then somewhere around about 5 million years ago, you get a big uplift, a tectonic uplift. It's what we call the Kalahari-Zimbabwe axis. And that cuts off the Limpopo from all of those rivers flowing from the north, which means that all of those rivers are pulling sediment um, and water into the Kalahari Basin. Um, and so you get this huge lake um, filling up. And then gradually, and we don't really know when that happened, but there is some pollen, so from from ancient plants at the bottom of that the, that series of sediments, which is about Pliocene in age, so somewhere between about five million and two million years ago. And then you, the as the East African Rift continues to form, you start reorganizing all the river systems tectonically. So first of all, you get the Upper Zambezi gets cut off and captured by the Zambezi, and then the Kwando. So that lake is progressively losing all of its inflows. So it's getting smaller and smaller. Um, and that's where the story starts becoming contentious, actually. So there's a, there's a number of researchers who think that's the kind of, that's the end of the story. It just dries out. Um, and that is that. I think the work we've done suggests that's not the case. And like an awful lot of lakes across Africa, there seems to be this huge sort of dynamic response um, in the Lake Quaternary, which is really sort of the last million years or so ago, I guess. And so at times when you're getting big ice sheets forming in 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 the northern hemisphere and across Europe and America, um, what's happening in in Africa and, and certainly within subtropical Africa is you're getting um huge climate changes, but mostly they they're manifested as um dry periods or wet periods. And so in East African lakes and even in, in some of the lakes like um, Lake Chad in the Sahara, we see those lake systems fill up and then empty again. Um, and we think that that's also what was going on in Makadikadi. So some of those shorelines we've been able to um, to basically drill and then we can date the sands. And that those dates tell us um, not how old the sand is, but when it was last deposited. Um, and so what that told us quite surprisingly is that that lake seems to have come and gone quite a few times in the last about 200,000 years. So we think what happens is when you get these big wet periods, um, it, it fills up both the, the, the Okavango and the Zambezi system, and then you get water pushing back through the Chobe. So you can almost see that um, sometimes when the rains are really, really big, the, the Chobe flows the wrong way. It sort of back floods about twenty kilometers um, from its its confluence with the Zambezi, um, and so you can imagine that on a large scale that this, all this water is starts pouring into the system. Um, and there's been a number of studies. So we think at its largest extent, we don't quite know when that dates to. It's probably about ninety thousand square kilometers of lake, um, and then there are these smaller and smaller lake um, phases. Um, so they're probably partly driven by climate, partly driven by tectonics. So there's all these superimposing scales going on. So it's quite complicated to pull apart. But we we think that lake has probably filled up a number of times in, in the last hundred thousand years. And then why are the bits that are the pans now the sort of the 
what we see as the salt pans. Why is that pan versus what was the rest of the area that was previously covered by the lake, which is maybe more sandy and, and looks different? Yeah, sure. So a lot of the sediments that are in that basin are lake sediments. So they're very different from... So most of Botswana... Um, which is made up of these sort of shifting sands. So it's in the, it's in a, the middle of Africa, the sort of interior of Africa is this huge bowl um, of quite deep Kalahari sand. So it's this old craton that's sort of filled up with sand. The Makadikadi is actually not that. Um, it, the sediments that are in there are, are lake sediments. So they're quite fine grained. Um, there's, there's deposits of um, what we call diatoms, which are these really... Um, it's these little creatures that used to live in the lake. Um, so it, it's a very dusty environment. So when it dries out, it's very friable and, and it can blow away. I, I mean, I think it's actually the third largest dust source in the Southern Hemisphere. So it's a ver- the, the sediments in that basin are a very different nature to the ones that, that lie outside, which is how we know it's a lake as well. Um, and one of the things we're trying to do at the moment is actually drill those sediments because they can, they can tell us a lot about what, what the climate system was like in the past. And earlier you said that it's not a true salt pan. What would be the differentiating factor then between a true salt pan and, and what the Makarikari is as that um, lake bed? Well, like I guess we sometimes as um, geoscientists we think about true salt pans as ones that are. Um, I mean, there's, there's a, they're formed in a number of different ways. So that's probably not quite the right phrasing for it. But and a lot of the salt pans in southern Botswana. Um, are sort of deflationary pans, so they um, they might be water holes that have um, lots of animals have frequented, and then they they get eroded, and then the material kind of um, blows away. So they are so they might kind of on a mini scale. Whereas I think this the Makarikari is very different in that it is there are lake sediments in there, so it obviously was this huge lake, unlike a lot of the other salt pans, which have never been these kind of large systems. Um, so I guess that's what I mean by it's. it's it's, it's slightly different in nature. Okay, fantastic. And then you mentioned sewer. Now, sewer, um, as you said, is it gets flooded every – it does get flooded. It's currently flooded at the moment. There's water in sewer pan, which means that anyone who's visiting Nata Bird Sanctuary can actually go and see the lake – well, the that's a Freudian slip there – see the pans with water in it looking very much like how we can imagine the lake would have been when it was full – and sewer, of course, is then also a source of a salt mine. Um, why is it that they can mine salt in sewer um, and not elsewhere? Is that sort of a relevant question? Um, I think it's because the water table, I mean, they can get to the water table in sewer. So the, the, there's, there's two water tables. I mean, it's, it's slightly different. The water they are mining in sewer um, is quite deep. So they drill these boreholes about 40 metres deep. Um, and then they pump the water to the surface and that water is so salty. So it's about three times saltier than seawater. Um, and it means that they can extract a lot of sodium carbonate. So what they call botash. Um, and so there and there's a there's a market for that. So that's actually been quite, you know, economically, that's been quite beneficial for Botswana. So they they that's how they extract the salt. Um, there's a different water table, which also lies a couple of meters below the water. And that's the kind of that's the water table that gets recharged every time there's there's rainfall. Um, but the. I think probably with sewer, it's just that that's where the, the, the deep water is most accessible. 
Um, and probably because it was, um, it has this longer history of being inundated um, by by water. So it's a little bit lower than the Tuetuipan, um, and it has those different rivers coming into it. So the Semawani and the Masetsi and the Masupi come off the Zam- uh, Zimbabwe highlands. Um, and so they get a little bit more rainfall than this coming through the, that manages to come through the Bateti, which is at the western end. And so the, the Suapan certainly has been been wetter I mean, it's wetter today, but we also know it was wetter in the past. So some of our drill cores, we can get records that um, go right back to about a thousand years ago. So those sediments extend all the way through um, what we call the Holocene, so the last 10,000 years. We don't find that in Natuetui. Most of that material has has blown away, which means Natuetui has been much drier um, as a place in the last, uh, over those long time periods. Um, but it still does fill up occasionally. Yeah, exactly, on the very wet years. Now, the other thing to say is, you know, when you're saying you, you look at the, the I mean, it is a great place to go to go and see the birds in, in, in Nata Bird Sanctuary. I mean, it, it's phenomenal if you're a birder. Um, but I mean, that, and it might give you a little sense of how that lake was. But I mean, the lake was enormous. I mean, it would have been, you would have been under 40 metres of water there. So as far as you could see, there would have been water. And I think that's the thing that's quite hard to get your head around. So the whole of that system would have just been... Um, submerged um which i quite like it's quite a it's you need a good imagination yeah. <laughs> you go there. so just highlight that depth again you said 40 meters deep it's probably about 40 meters deep 40 to 50 meters deep yeah okay yeah. my brain had not contemplated that quite yet next time i go out there i'll just contemplate being at the bottom of a 40 meter deep lake being <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i know from um from studies being done in terms of the work that Graham's done, Graham McCulloch was interviewed. We talked about beer, not about flamingos and salt pans, but um, we have had him, have had him on the podcast um, and other work done in the area that, that salt crust is quite a sensitive um, environment. And it's very important that it's not destroyed and that there is, you know, conservation of that crust. Why is that? Why is that salt crust so important? I mean, it's very easy to break. I mean, it's. I, I mean, there's a number of ecological reasons. I'm probably not the person to ask about that. I mean, Graham has done so much work on flamingos. It's a really, really important flamingo breeding ground. Um, the geochemistry of that lake is quite unique. So I think that's why it draws in so many birds. Um, the the salt, I mean, something to be said for that salt crust is it is, it is ephemeral. Um, I was often getting told off uh, by Ralph Bassville for driving on it because we obviously need to to do our research. We need to get deep into the pan, um, and sometimes there are there's no tracks, mm-hmm. and so we have to make our own. And he would argue that you can see those tracks, um, and they stay visible for decades. So, so every time you drive on it, you're leaving a mark that you can see um, very visibly in the surface. Um, but at the same time, those salt, those salt crusts are ephemeral, so they will come and go. Um, and they, as they dry out, they crack and then they they sort of expand because they're made of clay and they sort of push up. Um, and then you get this kind of fluffy kind of poppadom-like surface across the pans. Um, so you can often tell, I mean, one, one of the ways we often tell <laughs> where's wet and where's dry is sort of how, where in that process um, 
is the the kind of reforming of the of the pan surface. So when it floods, it basically resets the surface, and you get this beautiful white surface, sort of stretching into eternity. And um, that's quite intimidating when you're driving on it. And then gradually it cracks and, and becomes a little bit drier. So you're always on a bit more safe ter- territory when you see this sort of proper dom. Um, like surface because you know it's a bit drier but um yeah it's incredibly fragile and so you, you could be driving along and you, you it looks stable but you are literally driving on a few centimeters of, of solid ground and beneath that is deep deep muds and if you if you break that surface you will go in and uh it is incredibly difficult to get out yeah and you, it's a very good description describing that crust as poppadom it's exactly what it's like and I think it's exactly why my eight-year-old loves running across the pants because it's a bit like the satisfaction of cracking multiple poppadoms yeah yeah I mean it's beautiful but it changes it changes the landscape so every year we go back it's different um, and yeah. so that so that it is an ongoing process so so in that sense the kind of I'm I'm less concerned about the how it looks um, than about the overall sort of e- ecosystem functioning. So I think, you know, a few tracks on the pans probably will do less damage than uh, mining the groundwater, for example, which will change the change the water table. I mean, and that's something you see. So you see where the mine has been operating because they've pulled the, the groundwater level down and then the, the surface then dries out and so then becomes colonised by grasses. So you lose that white salt pan surface um, because it becomes stable. So you can see those kind of longer term changes as well. And that's really to do with what's going on under the, under the surface of the salt. So not necessarily on the, the salt crust. Oh, that's a really good insight. Thanks for sharing that one. So recently the pans also got um, sort of profiled in in more in the public, me- in the mainstream media because of the studies that show that it is possibly the source of mankind now obviously i know you look at the history of rocks and sand rather than the history of people but from an archaeological perspective what is the importance of the pans yeah i mean it's been really interesting the last few years because we um i mean having worked out there for sort of 15 years uh, you know in these strange corners of botswana i mean we were we were well aware that this was not a a kind of backwater for human prehistory. I mean, everywhere you go, you find stone tools. So um, we knew that there was this long record of humanity um, in the Kalahari and certainly within the Kadi Kadi. Um, and then recently there's been a um, a few, I suppose just to go back to say why that is, why there's this big gap. We, we Until recently, we really didn't know anything about the the sort of prehistory uh, of Stone Age people within in um, the interior of Southern Africa and Botswana in particular. Um, and that's just because it's a really difficult place to operate. So I said before, you have these sort of shifting sands, I guess. So an awful lot of the sites are are covered by sand. There's very few cave locations. So Sedilo is an exception. There's almost nowhere where you um, you have these cave sites where you might have multiple visits, which is what people look, an awful, an awful lot of archaeologists look for. Um and so a lot of our understanding of human prehistory comes from the, the kind of coastal cave sites around South Africa and those those rich sort of depot centres in East Africa. And then there's been this big gap in the middle where very little has been done. Um, and over the years, there's been an awful lot documented. So there's been numerous people that have worked um, you know, long before me who've, who've observed all of these stone tools, but no one's really ever sort of systematically investigated them. 
And then recently, um, I guess what the thing that kind of puts off geoscientists and, and archaeologists, which is this very difficult landscape to work in, hasn't put off the geneticists. And so they've been doing these studies where they've been using um, what they call mitochondrial um, DNA to try and kind of track back um, and understand, you know, how how people, how the different groups within Southern Africa interacted in the past. Um, I'm not a geneticist. I'm not even going to attempt to describe how they do that because it, it, it blows my mind. Um, but yeah, a couple of years ago, there was a very controversial paper that came out um, where um, the authors said they'd identified the sort of origins of what they called the homelands, which I think is probably a bit of an unfortunate term of, of anatomically modern humans. Um, that paper has a lot of criticism, I should say. So I think it's it's fair to say is a bit more complicated than that. And it's it's almost impossible to pinpoint you know, the origin of humanity to, to one location in time and space. Um, and we know that because there are there are a multitude of studies um, where we have information that, that is just it's just more complicated than that. But it has put Botswana on the map. Um, and I think one of the things we wanted to do, really, irrespective of whether those theories about whether that was the origins or not, is to put some some data onto those ideas. So we really wanted to kind of come in and, and systematically look at some of the archaeology that we were seeing when we were doing um, our, our sort of geoscience research um, and try and understand, you know, who were these people making those stone tools? When were they here? What were they doing here? And, and what was the environment like when they were here? Um, and so that's really what we've been trying to do um, over the last couple of years. So I'm not going to claim to be an archaeologist because I'm definitely not, but we have um, two brilliant archaeologists on our team um, and they've been kind of piecing these things together. And Makarikari is one of the most amazing places to go to do this, um, partly because you can, I mean, there's stone tools everywhere. I mean, once you get your eye in, you can see them all over the pan floor. Um, but they're they're beautiful sites because they are, unlike the cave sites where, People visited them multiple times over thousands and thousands of years. So one of the archaeologists on the project um, described it to me as a as a, uh, a murder scene with many murders. So it's quite difficult to unpick what went on. Makarikari, we have these beautiful sites where um, it's like a window into the a day in the life of somebody who lived sixty thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. So this there's this black silkrete on the pan floor. Um, and what we've been trying to do is is map it all out. And then the archaeologists we've been working with have kind of painstakingly put it all back together. So they've refitted all the tiny bits of stone tools um, and put them back together to try and understand, you know, what those people were trying to do at particular sites. Um, so you see this. I mean, I just find it phenomenal. You can stand at an archaeological site like that. And it is you have a window into the past, which just is phenomenal and you pick up a stone tool and maybe the last person who held that was somebody standing there 60,000 years ago um you know my job is to try and work out what that landscape looked like 60,000 years ago and um you know how, was it wet was it dry um so those are the sorts of questions we're now we're now trying to address fascinating and is the picture looking like it supports the genetic theory or as you say it's obviously more complicated than that but I mean, are we talking about people living in our area very early on in humankind's development from an archaeological perspective, or is it still very unknown? 
Yeah, certainly. I mean, we always knew there were people in the Kalahari because there is, I mean, and there's, there's, there's even older tools that are from the early Stone Age. So we're talking somewhere, you know, before half a million years ago. Um, but yeah, these sites. Um, so what we are finding is that um, people within the, that lake bed were probably there. It's quite hard to pin down the time, but somewhere between about 60,000, 80,000 years ago. Um, yeah, and they, um, so certainly in, the, in those genetic um, hypotheses, they were, they were suggesting that there was this big out-migration from Akadikadi, which may have happened, who knows? I, we, we don't have the evidence for that. But they also suggested that there was this sort of stable population that remained at the heart of the Kalahari. So yeah, we, our, our data certainly supports that. Um, what these people were doing there is still quite hard to unpick. So um, the, the archaeologists will tell you that there's um, what, what's what's interesting. I think is that what's not at these sites is is almost as interesting as what is at these sites. So um, there's lots of points. There's lots of um, so what what looked like a little bit like arrowheads. I mean they were they're not because we've got no evidence that they were used for hunting. So when you, when people make these kind of stone projectiles and they use them for hunting, what you often identify is, is damage at the tip when they've, they've thrown it, they've attached it to a spear and thrown an animal. And we see no damage on these things at all. Um, we see no sort of evidence for retooling. Um, and we don't even find sort of perfect stone tools. They're all a little bit, they're all a little bit like somebody's made a mistake. So they've, they've, painstakingly made these things out of silkrete. They've sat down and chipped away um, and then they've made a mistake and, and they've just gone ah, and, and dropped it there. Um, and so, you know, you can see, you can almost feel their frustration 60,000 years ago as they've, they've sat there for hours making this thing and, and then it's broken. Um, yeah, so it's, it's phenomenal what we can find out, even though these are kind of open air sites. That's really amazing. Um, truly fascinating. And, I think that there's a there's something to be said about being out on the pants, whether it's um, however you view the world as an individual, but to be under such a big sky and to be surrounded by this ancient bed that even if you don't have the history into it like you do, you can still appreciate the fact that you're standing on ancient land. And there's a, that creates a sort of sense of spirituality around the place or a sense of your scale in humanity. And so what you're saying just really reinforces that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say, I mean, taking my scientist hat off, I would say almost no one leaves that pan or that late bed without this is a sort of affecting sense of humility and perspective. I mean, you just, you can reach back into time and hold on to one of these stone tools. Um, and then, you know, you, you camp out there at night and you are under billions of stars. Um, it, you find a spot under a thousand-year-old baobab tree. I mean, everything, every little thing in your life falls away under that perspective. It's incredibly humbling. Um, and you feel like you are part of something enormous. And I think because that enormity is quite so hard to, to grasp, um, it really quite fundamentally changes the way you, you think about your life. And um, so all the science aside, it's an incredibly affecting place. Yeah, and exactly that. This, but as you say, you've mentioned the stars. Um, I interviewed Steve O'Meara in an earlier episode about the Botswana night sky. He's got a really great book out um, about the Botswana skies. And of course, the Makhari Khari is a wonderful, wonderful spot to see the stars if you're not there on a full moon. Um, and just the sense of scale of the place 
as you say, the baobabs, the, it, it, it is just unlike anywhere else I've ever experienced in the world. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I would choose to go back there time and time again. Um, it, it's also an incredibly difficult place to, to find out <laughs> things scientifically. It's very difficult to operate on, which is in terms of just field logistics as well, which is also why I, I think if people are considering going there, I mean, bear that in mind, it can rain in the dry season and, you know, you, you won't get out there. So it's, it's unpredictable in that sense too. And the yeah, that late bed is not going to give up its secrets very easily. Well, that makes it, I'm sure, for fascinating studies. And I find it really interesting that you spend so much time mentally in Botswana, despite spending so little time physically here. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm desperate to get back. But um, yeah, travel restrictions are quite tough at the moment. Yeah. So in terms of, I, obviously, you haven't experienced the Makarikari as a tourist per se, and rather from a more academic field. But in terms of the area and activities and experiences available to people, we've mentioned this idea of this life-altering perspective shift um, that that tends to happen out in the pans. Uh, could you share any other things that you think are worth visiting for or experiencing whilst you're out there? Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, there's, there's a number of places you can go. I mean, the, there's a number of tour operators that offer different things. I mean, you can, you can very easily go to, um, on the road between um, Maranata, and uh, people offer overnight stops and um, uh, day trips into the pan. If you get, if you get the opportunity to sleep out on the pans, then then take it. I mean, it, it really is. I mean, you, we were talking about the stars, but I mean, that, that is an experience. Um, I can recommend to anyone. Um, it's absolutely beautiful, and they will take you somewhere where you have this big expanse of of white um, salt pans. So it's quite difficult in dry years. Actually, it's quite difficult to find those big expanses sometimes. So ironically, I think we were, we were talking about like the mine, but in the dry years, the water table drops, and so you get um, quite big colonizations of extensive colonization of grasses. So sometimes you need that expert advice to take you to somewhere um, where you have this enormous um, sort of space in which to consider your existence um yeah but i mean if you yeah if you can get the opportunity to spend a night out there um then do it i mean there's there's other there's other um spots within the pans that um i would definitely recommend if you can get to on the on the southern um shoreline there's this huge escarpment um and that that too is full of archaeology um particularly um pastoralists and uh um, more recent archaeologies in the last sort of thousand years, um, but you can see right over the um, right across the pan. So it's one of the points where you can get a really good perspective um, up high. Um, and then the other thing I would I would definitely recommend. I was just talking to a friend of mine in in Man last week. Is if you get the chance to fly over it, um, then then definitely do that. I think there are. I think there's there's some operators now offering flights over Makarikari, but I mean, it, from the air, it really is staggeringly beautiful. Yeah. Delta, Delta helis are now offering helicopters out of the uncharted Africa camps. So that's Jack's San and, and, and camp Kalahari. You can now book a heli flight from, from the camp. if you're staying there? Yeah. I, and that's something I've, I've, I've only once flown into the pan, <laughs> which is actually a friend who flew me in because I got stuck in man. But, uh, but it is, it's such a different way to experience it. And you really get a sense of the, of the enormity of the place, I think, if you, if you fly in. So if you, if you do get the opportunity to do that, then definitely do that. Yeah. 
Fantastic. Those are both great suggestions. And Kubu Island is one of the places I haven't seen um, and experienced myself. Clearly got to fix that um, and get, get there. But would you recommend Kubu as an experience as well for people? Yeah, and Kubu is completely different. So Kubu is this big lump of granite. So it actually is a, they call it an island. It's actually a sort of peninsula more than an island. Um, so it sits on these um, these very ancient rocks that have been exposed by all the all the sediment on top, on top of it has been removed. Um, and it's peppered with baobabs and with archaeological sites. Um, and it is phenomenal. And and when the sun goes down there, I mean, it's the colours are are beautiful. Um yeah, it's a, it's a it's a truly brilliant experience if you can get to Lakubu. Um, the road is always quite bad, so I mean we've approached it from a number of places. So <laughs> quite some patience. Yeah, if you are going in, in a four four by four, it's it's not. Yeah, there can be deep sand and um, a lot of what we used to call bulldust. So you sort of suddenly disappear under dust. Um, as you go down, there. I don't know what I mean. It varies from year to year. I mean, and that's what I would say about that whole system is. From year to year, it changes so much. Um, it's an incredibly dynamic system. So the roads, you know, if they're good one year, they might not be good the next year. They might not even exist the next year. So it's, it is worth checking before you go um, and talk to the locals because they will really know what the state of those roads are um, and whether it's safe to go. I mean, do not risk getting stuck out in the pans. It's, it is not an easy place to get yourself out of. Yeah, that clay is is super sticky stuff. So, um, yeah. fantastic. And then, of course, um, the actual there's a, there's actually Makarikari National Park, and the park part of the pans form falls within the park. How well do you know the park itself? I'm a little bit so a lot of so some of our sites are in the within the park itself, and um, so we did a lot of survey work there actually. And, and and the other thing I would say about that part of the world is that it has these phenomenal migrations. Um, so both from the Bateti, where you see thousands of zebra and wildebeest coming in and out um, at the end of the um, dry season, and back to the Bateti. Um, yeah, and then the, this this extremely long migration, which I think comes down from the Chobe, which they've only really just discovered. I mean, again, there's these these crazy things that happen there. So uh, they removed a fence, so the buffalo fences, which separate um, the wildlife from domestic livestock, and those some of those have been removed recently, but they've been there for decades and decades, so longer than the lifespan of of any animal. Um, and yet, when they took them away those migration routes opened up and the zebras started coming back all the way back to Makarikari, um, from right up in the Chobe. Um, and even from the Okavango, I think they've, they've tracked some of them. So th they have these crazy long migrations that come into the pan. So the importance of this system ecologically, um, is also quite well documented. So they have very mineral rich, um, grasses, I think, and that is why those animals are going there. But yeah, if you can catch that migration as well, um, which goes into the national park, then um, that is phenomenal. So I've been there in years. We we were um, we were on our way to Kumaga. Uh, we were in the, in the Njuka Hills, which is a little kind of um, high point actually between Gweta and Kumaga on the on the sort of grassy area, um, and it rained in Makarikadi and. You know, three thousand zebra turned around and came back into the pans, and we had to kind of cross these zebra, um, which were also followed by a load of lions and cubs, and I mean, it was incredible. I, I've never seen anything like it. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's the aside from the kind of depth of 
history and prehistory and the enormity of that kind of landscape, there is also so much going on there to see in terms of animals. Um, and I, I think there's a, there's a lot more elephants there. So years ago, we never used to see elephants. And now there's there's a lot of elephants pushing into that system. Um, there's, there's all sorts going on there. But there's, the other thing I would say is if you if you go with a guide, they will also show you all the minutiae of things. I think it's the one place you can kind of get to grips with the details and the birds um, are beautiful as well. So there's a lot of different species in the pans that you don't find elsewhere because it's very dry and it's this very kind of unique ecosystem. So, yeah, there's loads of reasons to go there. But if you're going to National Park, then there's, there's certainly a lot of animals to see. I think that's a really great description. Um, my first job in Botswana was working out on the pans. I must say the big sky got to me after a while and I declared when I left that I would never be back. I fixed that 15, more than 15 years later, 17 years later. I actually went out recently in the last two weeks um, for a night out there and had the opportunity to really experience the park again. I'd been to the pans a few times in the last few years, but I hadn't been to more to the the wildlife area and into the park and lion uh lion taking down a wildebeest right near camp ellies every day and so that was really very for me a big change from when i'd been out there in 2004 um where lions were seldom seen and the ellies were just never seen there's certainly a lot to see now and the other thing you can see there which i my favorite i mean i'm so at dusk when we're coming back from fieldwork, I mean, occasionally we see brown hyena, which are known as sort of the ghosts of the Kalahari um, and Ardwolf, and they are beautiful. I mean, they are truly, truly beautiful animals. Um, so if you're lucky enough to see some of those, the Panzer is a really good place to see them. Yeah. And then, of course, there's my favourite, which are the meerkats. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they are. So they have um, – so some of the camps, uh, there's, there's several lodges which um, – the two main groups really, but they 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 employ some of the the um, the local people in Guetta to basically hang out with these meerkats, so that they are completely habituated. So they they don't really have a fear of humans. So they're wild meerkats going about their daily activities, um, but you can kind of go and hang out with them, and they will climb on top of you, and um, they just they I think they just see you as a convenient viewing post for predators, um, but that's quite an experience. In a flat landscape, it's not difficult to be the tallest, <laughs> the highest. Yeah, ground. exactly. Yeah, no, they are. They're amazing. I've I've actually taken my daughter a few times to see them. I think she was a bit young. She was utterly unimpressed <laughs> with these little critters that were trying to. Climb. <laughs> well, when we've always been with the kids, is um, there ends up being a bit of a competition uh. about who gets the meerkat. <laughs> If you if you manage to get a meerkat on you or not, as, as you know, makes or breaks your day yeah. if you're five years old. So, um, but it's a really great experience, and we've been out there and seen not only the habituated meerkats but also wild meerkats. So anyone who loves meerkats like I do, it's a great opportunity to see them. And then also other desert species like the bat-eared yeah. foxes, they're quite readily seen. Um, and then also. Not the most northern spot, but a spot to see Springbuck. If you really want to see them, you can see them there as well as Naipan. Once you get into the Okavango, they it's too wet for them and you don't see Springbuck anymore. The other thing I would say with animals as well is is nighttime in the pans. Because the sound carries so far, because you have this big, expansive space, um, you know, listening to the jackals and the lions, I mean, it really is it's an amazing experience to hear that. And, you, and I, I often think, oh, my goodness, what would these people who were here, you know, 
open in this system uh, feel like when they heard those sounds. I think there's something still within us that kind of really feels, you know, when a lion makes that noise in the middle of the night in a big open salt pan, we feel some way connected to the fear that people must have felt, you know, 60,000 years ago when they were there. Yeah, that's a really great insight. And, you know, talking about the the sounds in the space, not only the sounds, but also the silence. In our modern world, it's very hard to find true silence like you can experience out there. Yeah, peace. I didn't think I, yeah, you won't find anywhere else where you have that peace, I think. Um, Yeah, and if you can go somewhere and you, I mean, something that I know the guides used to do is they, they would take people out and then they'd make them walk away from the campfire at night and just sit down and listen. And I think that was always quite deeply affecting for people. So, um, because we're not used to that kind of absence of noise in our lives. Um, And some people find it quite troubling, I think. Mm, Not easy to sit with the silence. And as you say, combine that with that perspective altering sort of scale of the space, it can lead to some really deep personal insights. Yeah, yeah. Well, talking about personal insights, are you ready for our snapshot session? Uh, I, I think so, as ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> so obviously, Sally, it's not necessarily in your backyard. Um, so your perspective is going to be slightly different from some of my guests who get who live out here in Botswana. But I really look forward to hearing what you have to say uh, as your response to these these questions. So the first one: What is your most precious or valued piece of safari equipment, and why? Um, I think I'm going to have to say my spade. <laughs> I think if you are going into the Magadi Muddy, as some people like to call it, um, do not go there without a spade, a jack, um, and something to put under your tyres. I mean, even uh, we carry a lot of wood. I think you can get sort of fancy things to put on your your wheels to in case in case you go into the mud. But I mean, it, it really is. If you really need to be prepared for that. So I would say definitely a, a spade. Um, and I think a little bit we're, we're talking about the, the difficulties of getting fuel sometimes around there. So I think my, a spade and my long range fuel tank would be my top choices. Fantastic. Great answer and a very unique answer. I haven't had that one before. Not even when we discussed self-driving, self-drive safaris, did a spade come up? Um, which one destination would you recommend a first-time visitor visits? Now, this is the question that the answer is always makhari khadi. So um, can I can I add a caveat here? Which one destination other than the makhari khadi would you say a first-time visitor Oh, my goodness. I, Have I thrown you a um, I d- Yeah, because I would say makhari khadi every time. Um, the Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't have anywhere to recommend as well because I, I, I rarely in the Delta. <laughs> I spend all my time in the sort of desert areas. So, um, yeah, go to the Makadi Kali. <laughs> I'm loyal to it to the end. But, yeah, I mean, I, I, I genuinely think it will change your perspective on life. That is what I'm recommending. I, I mean, it, unlike, I mean, the Delta is is phenomenal. And, the, you know, there's so many beautiful parts of Botswana. But um, I think the perspective that the Makadi Kali offers um, is something you can't get anywhere else. Fantastic. And it is due to that question and the answers that I consistently get, that is why I am fixing it by making sure we've had this this chat today, because it does definitely come across as the one spot that people who know Botswana say everyone should see. One yeah. resource everyone coming to Botswana should know about. Um, I was thinking about this. So um, I'm a geographer, I guess, by training. So um, I love maps. 
the one thing I found really useful is is something called um, it's an app called Maps Me. I don't know if you've come across it. So it allows you to download maps offline. Um, so I spend a lot of my time looking at the world through Google Earth and satellite images. Um, but when I'm in the field, sometimes I need to know you know where I am relative to landscape features. Um, and obviously, when you're out there, there's you know there's there's often no phone signal or there's no Wi-Fi. So um, yeah, I find that really useful to be able to to get a perspective of of where I am relative to the things that I I want to get to. That's a really great suggestion and applicable to anybody, whether you're driving yourself or flying from lodge to lodge. If you want to try and understand where you are relative to where you've been and um, just sort of understand your landscape a little bit, have a have a, a downloaded satellite image and map of where you are and enjoy enjoy it from that perspective as well have a look around you yeah definitely that's a great answer so on to the fun stuff your top sundown a destination drink or piece of advice for having a great sunset my top destination which is possibly a little bit far if you're coming from man <laughs> but um there is there's another island in in makarikari called kukonji um, which is in the south of Suapan, um, and it is phenomenally beautiful. You can only get to it when it's really dry, so it's about uh, I think it's about seven kilometers from the shoreline. Um, so it's a bit of a hairy drive if you're not sure what the condition of the pan is like. Um, but it is it is truly beautiful. It is peppered with huge baobabs. There's stone tools everywhere. There's beaches from from the ancient shoreline, and and the sky is just incredible. Um, so that would be my my top spot for a sundowner, but it's a, a bit of a hike <laughs> to get to. Um, but if you should find yourself in that area, that sounds like in. a great bit of inside <laughs> information. And then the last one, which is a bit of a tricky one, um, you don't really have a weekend to explore in Botswana, but when you come back and the travel restrictions make travel out here a little bit easier, is there one spot you're thinking that you're going to make sure you try and get to? There's a couple of places I, I always want to spend more time. I think one is, so we, we keep our, um, all of our equipment in, in South Africa, in the Northern Cape. Um, and so I, I do this sort of long drive along, often along the Malopo, in, right in the south of Botswana. Um, and so the, the Kalahadi Transfrontier Park is always somewhere I drive past and I never have time to go in um, with those huge red sand dunes. I mean, it is, it's beautiful down there. Um, so I'd love to spend a weekend there. Um, from the north, I think uh, the Bateti is somewhere else I'd, I'd like to explore more. So down in Kumaga, you know, you can overlook the riverbed, um, and especially when the, the zebra are there. Um, so I spent some time there helping a, a very good friend of mine who was a zebra researcher. And um, yeah, I mean, it's phenomenal. I mean, we watched the, watched the water come down in 2010 for the first time and these sort of very surprised crocodiles there. But um, it's beautiful. You can look down over those cliffs onto the animals and it's, it's a very different perspective. So, yes, I'd like to explore a bit more around there. There's that area is really lovely in terms of being accessible from Mound. There's um, already two established lodges in the area and they're more going up. And it's on the way into Mount if you're doing if you're driving yourself in. So I, I agree 100%. Bateti is a really good option. At the moment, there is a ferry. The river's up enough that you have to cross by the ferry. The ferry and I share a name, so I always feel a little <laughs> uh, nostalgic around the ferry. Um, but the Tessa is running at the moment, and um, yeah, it's even out of Mount you can do a day trip into 
that western part of Maharihari National Park and get down to see the zebras. And it's such an easy day because you just sit and they come to you and it's really, really it's really beautiful that that bit of Yeah, it's very little effort required, I think, to <laughs> to hang out there. Well, Sally, thank you so much for this um, this chat. I feel like we've really only scratched the surface of what is Maharihari. I feel like we've barely lifted one of those crusty poppadoms off the surface of the pans. Um, there's so much more to understand. But thank you so much for getting into it a little bit more with us and just really helping certainly me, who's known a bit about the pans since I first came to Botswana, still learn even more. Um, thank you really for that. That's been really great. No, thanks, Tessa. I mean, it's any consolation. I've worked there for 15 years and I still feel like that. <laughs> but I've only just scratched the surface. So there's a lot more left to learn. Yeah, thank you so much for reaching out. And I feel like um, we might need to do a Mahari Hari on repeat, sort of an annual Mahari Hari update. Um, and just keep on trying to dig a little bit deeper into what the area means. Um, but thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for being here with me today. You're very welcome. And um, I'm loving the podcast. It's really nice to hear about Botswana from from my my living room in Oxford. <laughs> right, thanks so much for the support. That was Dr. Sally Burrow, the Trapnell Fellow of African Environments at the University of Oxford, chatting to us about a place she knows intimately, despite only visiting occasionally, the Maharihari Pans. It truly is a special place. If you are coming out to Botswana, try and see it and spend some time out there. Botswana's rains have come early this year, and the Maharihari was hit very hard in the first rains, so it's already a bit wet out there. Look forward to hearing how those pans fill up over the upcoming months. Once again, I thank you for taking the next step in this journey with me. Until next time, goodbye.